This morning, um, I thought I'd, I'd just start off by talking about some very difficult things. Why not? Um, now that you, some of you at least have relaxed a little, <laughs> you can't you can't talk about some of these things on Friday night or people run out the door screaming. Um, and and lots of times before I can hear anything, I need uh, some regular meals and some sleep. And I find if I remember that, regular meals, some sleep, before I go into a stressful situation, I can usually handle it better. Um, and then after I've been in a stressful situation, I find I need some regular meals and some sleep. <laughs> it's, it's real important. Um, but what I want to just uh, massage a little bit this morning is, is taking a, a look at the, the alcoholism um, which in our literature we talk about as being embarrassing and confusing and illogical and how it can baffle a lot of us, especially if you're not alcoholic yourself. And even many alcoholics get very, very confused by this stuff. And, and um, in Alcoholics Anonymous they have a pamphlet, which very few people read, called uh, Problems Other Than Alcohol. And the fact of the matter is, and, and this is the difficult subject, although you may be in relationship of some sort with an alcoholic, alcoholism might not be the only problem. And this um, makes our world a little more complicated than otherwise. What do I have in mind? Well, an awful lot of us with an alcohol problem also regularly have great problems with depression. And you think, I mean, I, one of the reasons I was depressed for years was because I was taking depressants into my body on a daily basis. You know, a little alcohol and non-habit forming marijuana, why am I so depressed? Um, and I, I did not see those things as depressants, I saw them as relaxants, you see, which is a distinction without a difference. Um, that's, they almost call it, what, uh, content-free language. Um, the fact is, uh, if, if you have a problem with depression, the last thing you want to be doing is drinking and using sedatives because it just increases that tremendously. And so folks get sober, and I'm not talking about the extremes of depression, which also are major problems for a lot of us, but the mood swings. In fact, they're not even swings after a while, but there's a definite rhythm and a definite movement. And there's going to be whatever normal feels like. There's a wide range of normal. And some people have periods of more up, and some periods have periods, some people have periods of more down. The first time I, I met with my, uh, my acupuncturist, I was the first person in my home group to have an acupuncturist, I want you to know. And I see her once a month for basic well-being. I figure the Chinese know things, you know. Um, they asked crusty old Mao Zedong, um, what are the two Chinese contributions to civilization? And he said, food and medicine. You know? And he's right on both scores, as far as I'm concerned. But I figure go once a month and get acupunctured for basic well-being. Um, so I do that, but uh, the acupuncturist was asking about how I felt and how my body worked and how things are, and she said, what time of the day do you feel most energy? What time of the day do you feel least energy? 
I had no idea what she was talking about. What do you mean? I was, I was so out of touch. I didn't know that the normal rhythm is there are periods of the day with a lot of energy and there are periods of the day with little energy and that pretty much works for people. This is why civilized countries lie down after lunch. You see? Because there's not a lot of energy there. If you want to deal with someone who is not operating on all six cylinders, talk to them at two o'clock in the afternoon. You know? Um, some of us wake up in the morning and we're just ready to go. And I find in the morning I can be pretty productive. I can get a lot done. And then there's a big slump in the afternoon. And then in the evening there's another boost of energy. That's a pretty normal rhythm. Well, some of us have those rhythms throughout the year. Sometimes we're up and sometimes we're down. And some of us find summer to be our very, 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 very best time of the year. We like the light. It's so wonderful. Oh, look, it's warm. That's not my current response to summer. You need to know that. I have found that I have, I'm always able to find something wrong with the weather. Um, you know, the winter is too dark and the summer is too light as far as I'm concerned. And, um, with, with the complexion I have when I see those long sunny days and those big sunny beaches, I think it's skin cancer. So I'm, I'm uh, not your basic optimist. So there's a normal thing with, you know, up and down. But there's a lot of alcoholics who go way outside of normal for up and down, and a lot of alcoholics also deal with manic depression. And, I mean, that's extreme up, extreme down. That's called bipolar. Some people are monopolar. They just go down. <laughs> and some just go up. Um, these, these are real difficult. Um, and what happens with manic depressives is we do try, to, and I'm not manic depressive, but manic depressives try to, at least not yet, I could probably be by tomorrow if I think about it, with cholera following close behind. Um, but it's, it's these mood swings, and you try to medicate the mood swings, you self-medicate, and alcohol is a real common help for a lot of us who are manic depressives because it balances things out, at least initially. And then they, they explode and it gets very crazy. You get sober and you're still manic depressive. And so you need to deal with problems other than alcohol and with manic depression. Uh, God did not invent the third step to deal with manic depression. God invented lithium. And people who are manic depressive really need the care of a skilled physician who knows the subject matter very well. And then you have to talk to that physician regularly, and then you have to follow directions and follow your medication. And manic depressives that I know hate that. Hate it. They'll follow the directions, they'll get back on normal mood swings, they'll kind of have a normal life, and then they'll say, clearly I'm cured. And then almost every manic depressive I know goes off the medication because they're feeling so good. So being that I'm feeling so good, why do I need the medication? You see the logic? Um, and this is why it, it, it's a real loss of control uh, to be on medication as far as they're concerned, and they feel dirty. And I try to explain, if you were a diabetic who needed insulin, would you feel this dirty? Well, no, but that's different. No, it's not different. It's not different. 
where addicts get into trouble is we diagnose ourselves and we're experts. <laughs> we diagnose ourselves and then we medicate ourselves. So if you know someone who has problems other than alcohol, <laughs> I, I, I'm nervous about telling this to an Al-Anon group. Uh, <laughs> but the best thing is to have that person connected to a competent physician. The word competent there is real important. And have that person follow directions in terms of medication. I mean, whatever, follow directions. One of my friends who suicided two years ago, um, lots of depression, lots of things going on, saw a physician who gave her like 12 pounds of Prozac. Oh, you're depressed. Take this. Here, 12 pounds. And then uh, what Pat would do is when she was feeling lousy, she'd, she'd follow the, the, the form. She, then she was feeling better. She'd stop using the medication. And then she'd feel lousy again, so she'd double the medication to catch up. See, this is what addicts do all the time. So it's just, it, it, it's that loss. We need to follow directions. What do we need? And for those of us in Al-Anon, if we have those kinds of problems, we need to follow directions too. We need to follow directions too. It's not at all uncommon for addicts and alcoholics to also have wild craziness around food issues. And lots of members of Al-Anon too. Uh, anorexia, bulimia, a compulsive overeating. There's all kinds of ways that we can get nuts around food. I mean, I'll find that, you know, there's, there's eating and then there's eating. <laughs> and every so often I will find myself, I mean, really abusing food. I'll be standing in front of the refrigerator eating ice cream out of the container. And I would suggest this is not normal ice cream eating. You know? And it's a way of just trying to deal with basic, you know, I, I'm feeling empty, I'm going to fill up somehow. Or I don't want to feel some stuff. I get so angry, I'll eat. I mean, I, that's stuff I need to watch at, uh, take a look at. Um, and, and there are other things. Bill Wilson, and this is one of the, the things that I, I can go into a little more detail on. Bill Wilson had all kinds of problems with depression throughout his life. And it's one of the reasons Lois needed Al-Anon. To deal with Bill's moods. Um, and it's hard to live or visit or have lunch with someone who's real ill. They exhaust us. And if we're surrounded by sickness, they're draining our energy all the time. So we really do need lots of help. There's a book written last year. It's published by Hazelton. It's called The Soul of Sponsorship by Robert Fitzgerald. This is a book dealing with the correspondence between Bill Wilson and his a spiritual director, uh, a, a priest named Father Edward Dowling from St. Louis, who was a Jesuit. And Edward Dowling was his uh, director for 20 years. And then he died in 1960. But they sure corresponded about a lot of things, and it talks about some of the things that make those of us in recovery very anxious. Um, alcoholics are terrified of depression. We don't want to talk about it. We don't want to talk about following doctor's orders. There are, I mean, we just get nuts on these things. And the image we want to have as sober alcoholics is that you stop drinking and everything's fine. 
And if you've lived with someone like that, you know that that's not true. It can be real complicated. Um, this is, is from this text, The Soul of Sponsorship. And it's, in 1943, 1944, Bill and Lois made a tour of the provinces. They visited all of the AA hangouts in America, and I guess Toronto, too, and waved at people and gave little talks and inspired folks. And it went very, very well. Now, um, the guy that, that internationalized AA, or not, well, I guess internationalized, but the guy who definitely got AA out of Akron, Ohio, was Jack Alexander who wrote an article in 1940-1941 in the Saturday Evening Post, and even though he's not an alcoholic, he explained the program brilliantly to the whole English-speaking world. Um, and it is, it, is a, it, is, it is a message of hope and practicality. It's a great article, but therefore, AA groups sprung up everywhere, and Bill and Lois go and visit them, and it's wildly successful. Things worked real, real well. People were glad to be living lives. Um, spouses and family members were so glad that their wife or their husband was sober, that their dad has gotten sober, that, that their brother or sister was sober. So it was pretty positive. Bill and Lois returned home in January 1944. The tour had been a success for Bill and the fellowship. What happened next came as a complete surprise. Bill was plunged into a suicidal depression that would last until 1955. Uh, put yourself in Lois's shoes. How do you... He's not drinking, but he's barely living. Boy, this, you, you really do need... Uh, when I was doing... Um, for a period of uh, several years, I did some direct stuff with people with AIDS. Um, uh, I mean, regularly and every week. And for four years, I did some work at the Center for People with AIDS in Oakland. Um, if you were doing that kind of work, the rule was you had to be in a support group that met every week. Well, I don't need that. <laughs> yes, you do. If you're with sick people, you need somewhere where you can go where you can get dealt with, where you can get energy, where you can get fed, where you can get nourished, where you can get listened to, where you can have a couple of laughs. Because then you go back to the very stressful situation. This is why for some of us, meetings become oases. You know, the only center of sanity in a totally crazy world. For some of us, it's the only place we're safe. And this is why it's real important that meetings follow all the traditions. You know, because otherwise, they're not safe. You know, the equal respect. The mutuality, the, the, the mutual vulnerability, the, 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 the paying attention to each other, that careful boundary observance stuff becomes vital at an Al-Anon meeting. Um, I have been to meetings uh, where one person who was a bit of a control freak took over the meeting and, you know, has been in charge of it now for 12 years. Um, and, and this happens in Al-Anon because we have control issues and if we can meet someone who can run everything, a lot of us relax. <laughs> so it meets our craziness. But that makes us all even crazier. You know? If you want to look at places that where one person runs everything efficiently, look at uh, what used to be East Germany, 
and what is North Korea today. You know, these are unhappy places, but they're clean. You know, but they're dictatorships. And we, uh, we don't need little dictatorships <laughs> in our world, I don't think. Um, let me, let me just do a little bit here on building depression. Again, because this, this is a terrifying thing for alcoholics. And they don't talk about it. It's never a topic at a meeting. And if someone gets depressed, what will happen is there will be a whole group that line up and say, work harder. Get over it. Try harder. Turn it over. What aren't you doing right? Now, these are all people who've never been depressed. Okay? At the International Conference in Seattle, um, one of the speakers was a woman named Eve Marsh. She's since died. She got sober the year I was born. And Eve was talking about depression. I mean, and you can just everyone stop breathing, you know, when she said the word. Um, because it's such a fear. I mean, it, it is scarier to talk about depression for alcoholics than to talk about sex. And if you talk about sex at an AA meeting, even the non-smokers light up. I mean, they all get right very <laughs> <laughs> so Eve said she used to, when people came in and said, I'm so depressed, she used to give them, you know, little pep talks or ridicule them or humiliate them or tell them to get off the pity pot. You're just full of self-pity. That's your problem. Oh, thank you. That really helps. Um, and she said the reason she did that was she had never been depressed. And then she said, and then I had my double mastectomy. And I got depressed. And I found out that depression was as real as a broken leg. You know, get over that broken leg, you know, let's get walking. Well, <laughs> depression lasts sometimes for days, uh, sometimes for weeks, sometimes for months, sometimes longer. And it takes a lot of effort to walk through it. Bill writes about this with great clarity. He says, this is Bill now. When I was tired and couldn't concentrate, he would write to other depressed people who were sober. And these are all in the archives in New York. Bill has a whole section. When I was tired and couldn't concentrate, you know, you're exhausted and you can't read. You can't even watch. T I mean, sound bites, you know, are for people who are depressed. That's all you can remember is 12 seconds, you know. And then you do the next one. I used to fall back on an affirmation toward life that took the form of simple walking and deep breathing. Simple walking. This, by the way, is one of the forms that people who practice Zen do to meditate. Walking and breathing. You don't need a lot of accoutrement or fanciness. It's just move, breathe. It's basic. I sometimes told myself that I couldn't even do this, that I was too weak. But I learned that this was the point at which I could not give in without becoming still more depressed. And if you ever dealt with depression yourself, you know you, that you can't get out of bed. And if you don't get out of bed, it gets worse. What are you going to do? I'm going to shower. Oh, God. <laughs> it, it's, it's wonderful. To get that far, you know, and then we'll deal with socks, you know, later in the day. 
So I would set myself a small stint. I would determine to walk a quarter of a mile. And I would concentrate by counting my breathing, say, six steps to each slow inhalation and four to each exhalation. Having done the quarter mile, I found that I could go on maybe a half mile more than another half mile and maybe another. This was encouraging. The false sense of physical weakness would leave me. That's one of the other things that always happens when you're depressed. You feel physically worn out, weak, exhausted, frail. Objectively, it might not be true at all, but that's how you're feeling. So, of course, you can't move. You can't swim. You can't walk. You can't get on the bicycle. You don't have the strength. It, it is as big a trap to be in as the drinking. This false sense of physical weakness would leave me, this feeling being so characteristic of depression. The walking and especially the breathing were powerful affirmations towards life and living and away from failure and death. The counting represented a minimum discipline of concentration to get some rest from the wear and tear of fear and guilt. That's what Bill writes. And then the commentary goes on. Bill would also push himself to write just half a page for the 12 Steps and 12 Traditions. This is that second little book that AA uses. He writes that book in his depression, which gives it much more value to me, knowing that. He didn't just dash it off. The New York AA Archives file of letters Bill wrote to others suffering from depression, as he did, shows the many ways Bill struggled to climb out of depression. Bill, Nell Wing, Bill's secretary, claimed those close to Bill were deeply concerned. She mentioned days when Bill would be dictating to her only to stop and break down weeping. From 1944 to 1955. Who's that old guy crying in the back office? Oh, he's the founder of AA. Uh, how long has he been sober? Ten years? Twelve years? Fifteen years? To say it out loud is real important. To give all of us permission when we talk to tell the truth. How are you doing? Sometimes pretty well, sometimes not so well. And if you're not doing so well, it's real important to be able to say that at a meeting. Or at least to some people who are safe. Because otherwise what happens is some of us are smiling, brave little smiles and thinking of shooting ourselves because we don't know another way out. And then we'll take responsibility for the group. Well, I can't tell the group I'm down. What will they do? They'll practice their program is what they'll do. See, we start taking care of each other, so I have to lie to take care of you. This makes us very sick. I was told that the reason the program works is that we're not all crazy on the same day. But we all get to be crazy, and especially when there's stuff going on with uh, you know, spouses or siblings or children or grandchildren. We get affected. And if I'm having emotional upset or depression or sorrow or anger, I need to be able to talk about that in a safe 
place. What makes a place safe? Um, well, uh, uh, let me tell you why my sponsor is safe to talk to for me, even though he needs meeting much more than I do. <laughs> he listens. He doesn't need to comment on everything I say. He listens. Sometimes he comments on things I'd rather he overlooked. You know, something I just slipped in at the end he wants to go back to and say, what did that mean? Oh, it's nothing. I was just buying guns. Um, <laughs> after he listens, he will sometimes share his experience, strength, and hope on a similar matter. He doesn't tell me what to do. Uh, only once has he done that, and that was because it was really crazy. <laughs> he told me what not to do, you know, which was my plan. Um, he said, don't do that today. You know, we can talk about that tomorrow. So I followed his directions. Um, but he, he shares his experience. He doesn't lecture me because it doesn't work. He doesn't try to scare me because that doesn't work either. I mean, I, I can't be scared. I mean, I'm, a, I'm an ex-smoker. You know, you can't scare up. <laughs> I remember when I was still able to smoke and climb upstairs, um, which I, I, I was not able to do with my last couple of years of smoking. Um, my folks, very concerned about my health and my smoking, my funny smoking. They would send me Reader's Digest articles about I'm Joe's lung, you know, very helpful. <laughs> Or stuff from the American Cancer Society, you know, and these are, by the way, big Al-Anon slips, because, I mean, I'm very concerned for you and that you send anonymous things in the mail. Um, <laughs> you're trying to run the other person's life. Well, when I would get that stuff, it would just piss me off. And instead of saying, see, if I, if I were a more well-put-together person, I would say, oh, look, literature about my health. Thank you very much. I'll follow your good advice. You're not dealing with someone like that. You're dealing with someone who is stubborn and cranky and contrary. So when I would get literature like that, it added five years to my smoking. In fact, I could still be smoking and it would be their fault. You know? See how the thinking is? This is why it is not helpful with many of us to give advice. Because if you're like me, you don't follow advice, even if you're bleeding and on fire. You'd rather not follow advice. The advice is put out the fire and stop the bleeding. Ha! What do you know? <laughs> the fire doesn't bother me that much. <laughs> I mean, look who you're dealing with. Um, so, um, uh, so he doesn't do that with me. He doesn't try to scare me. Also, he knows that inspiring little talks don't work. <laughs> Let me give you an inspiring little talk, Tom. Um, I'm too cynical. It makes me crazy. When I hear, and this happens in church too, when I hear these inspiring little talks, I just want to drink. <laughs> and I know I shouldn't. Uh, I should be very careful in watching political conventions for this reason. Um, because, I mean, the, the, the pictures painted are so unrealistic. They're just so 
pink and fluffy and happy if you only let us run your life. And I, I find myself reacting, not acting, but reacting. However, again, how does my sponsor deal with me in terms of Al-Anon issues? He listens, he shares his experience. Every so often he underlines something I've said. And he'll say something like, that's real important to pay attention to. Um, he's not a control freak. He's too self-obsessed to worry about others. That's nice. <laughs> and, and it's one of the real benefits of self-obsession, you know. Some of us aren't self-obsessed. We only worry about others, and, and therefore we think we're having a close personal relationship with this person. But we're not. We're just worrying, you know. Learning how to talk about our experience, strength, and hope without trying to run the world, without taking hostages, and without full of criticism is the Al-Anon blessing. It's the Al-Anon blessing. And you can see people practice this. I... Um, I, I'm very lucky in my sponsor, he, he uses both programs. His father was also alcoholic. And his father died when, when Terry was a little boy. Uh, his father died on a slip. You know, people die on slips. Um, and he knew a lot about alcoholism and, and uh, the family disease and read the big book before he took his first drink. You know? And then, of course, after the first drink, <laughs> off to the races. Um, you know, there's, there's life to live. <laughs> oh, well. Um, he believes strongly that he has no right to protect me from my own pain. Oh, this is hard, because if you love someone, you don't want them to hurt. But the fact is, sometimes the only way you grow up is by hurting. And sometimes the most loving thing we can do for another person is to give them the respect of their own pain. Um, I did some Elizabeth Kubler-Ross stuff, and I, I find her to be very, very inspiring. Um, she, can, she can give me inspiring little talks so that I don't jump out of a chair or pass out. Um, um, but she talks, I mean, from this wealth of experience. And when we were on this five-day workshop, when we're dealing with death and dying, and people are there with cancer and, and all kinds of diseases and healthcare professionals, and it was very, very powerful, she said, you know what happens a lot of times um, in, in groups like this, we're going to talk about some very, very powerful stuff, people will be sharing, and someone will start crying. And the first response a lot of us will have is go over and hug them. She said, you know what the hug says? Stop crying. You're making us all nervous. Oh, I just want to give them comfort. No, no. You want to give you comfort. You see, their crying is making you crazy. I'm cold. You wear a coat. You see? And she said, so we're going to allow, at, at this five-day thing, we're going to allow people to be uncomfortable. And if someone's crying, let them cry. And don't grab their little hand. 
let them cry, show them the respect of their feeling. And by, so that's one side of it. Another side of it is some people cry to control the room. See, if I am clearly the bird with the broken wing, you're going to give me my way. Some alcoholics figured this out years ago. <laughs> and so the craziest person in the group is the most powerful person in the group. Um, in Al-Anon, we learn how to act, not react. And if someone's in crisis, they get to be in crisis. If someone cries, they get to cry. There's a wonderful movie that I would recommend. It's about very crazy families. It's an older film now. It's the first film I was able to cry in. It's called Ordinary People with Mary Tyler Moore and Donald Sutherland and Timothy Hutton. And it's about a family that experienced a tragedy and the whole family went crazy. It's, I guess, made in the early 80s. Um, and it, it's not a light film. I mean, this is, this is about real human interaction. But the young man uh, that Timothy Hutton plays has a lot of stuff, and he has a suicide attempt, and he is sent to the shrink by the family, so he will get better, but we're not going to talk about it. You know, big elephant in the living room, the big rhinoceros in the living room. We just want the kid to get better, but we don't want to talk about it. Look good. Smile. How are you? Fine, thanks. Um, I went to see it um, in an afternoon. I was living and working in Los Angeles at the time, and halfway through the film, I just started sobbing. And it was the first time I'd cried in sobriety, and I think I was sober four years. And so I went back the next day and uh, cried when the credits came on the screen. I mean, I just started <laughs> sobbing, you know. I had so many uncried tears, and for some of us who do that, you know, Kubler-Ross thinks, that if you have a lot of lung problems, it's uncried tears. If, if asthma problems, breathing, congestion, it's uncried tears. It's unworked grief. And so she's, as a physician and a psychiatrist, she says, if you can get people with severe asthma to cry, this will help them. So some of us, though, we're just so congested and, 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 we're convinced if we start to cry, we'll never stop. Well, the fact is, you will. I mean, it might not be for a while, but you will. But loss of control, what will people say? I can't break down on the family. Go to the movies. Go to a movie, get a video, go to a nice dark theater on a Thursday afternoon when no one else is there except people getting away from their families. Or, or playing hooky from work, so no one's going to pretend they see you. <laughs> and let yourself cry. It's very, very powerful. Anyway, old Timothy Hutton comes in and meets the perfect shrink. Great shrink, played by Judd Hirsch. Uh, reminded me of my first shrink when I was sober, a guy named Leonard. Judd Hirsch has these wonderful eyes, and he says, So, Timothy, what are you, or whatever his name is, you know, why, do you, why are you seeing me? And the kid says, I need more control. See, I need more control. And uh, Judd Hirsch says, well, I'm not big on control, but we'll talk. And, and it works. I mean, the kid starts healing. The kid starts, the trust stuff starts, and he starts working through things, and a crisis finally happens, and he runs to see the shrink again, and he's just, he's just wigging out. I mean, he's very upset. He's feeling real intensely. And uh, 
Judd Hirsch tries to make him feel better and say, well, kiddo, it's going to work out. And the kid turns to him and says, listen, I feel lousy. Let me feel lousy. Good for him. And the shrink backed off. Sometimes we have to feel lousy. It's the most authentic thing we've got going for us, and it's true. And sometimes we have to let someone else feel lousy. And this sends my anxiety through the roof. Especially if I love you, I want to protect you. I had this with students of mine. When I was still teaching, and before I had much of an Al-Anon program, the easiest way for you to manipulate me is to walk in the room with a broken wing. And I would do anything for you, because I was such a friend. But I ended up lying and manipulating and cheating and doing all kinds of stuff to make the broken wing go away, you know. But the kid had already figured out that the broken wing was his most effective tool. So it's not going to go away. <laughs> Kept coming back in crises. Um, the detachment. The detachment. And you can say, the wing is broken and the paper still do. Um, letting someone else be in pain, letting someone else hurt, takes every fiber of my Alamon recovery. Because I don't want anyone to ever hurt. So, talking with my sponsor, I, 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 I went through, a, I would say, a pretty significant depression about eight years ago, nine years ago. Um, I had been in, well, I, I was doing a lot of things and stuff, you know, life was happening and um, I knew I needed some time off, and so I took some time off. This was January, February, March. I don't even—I'd have to look up the year it was, but it was about five or eight years ago. And um, I, I just kind of fell apart, and I—everything I, was bleak, and I was trying some things, all of which were just exploding in my face, and nothing was working, and I was getting worse and worse. By which I mean I was feeling worse and worse. So after a month not even a month, say three weeks of that, I called my sponsor and I said, this is what's going on, I'm really a mess. And he said, you really are. <laughs> then he said, you've worked real hard to get here. Um, this is important stuff. Don't rush to put a band-aid over this. It's real important you pay attention to this. Um, what are you doing to help yourself? And I was talking to a couple of older priests I really needed, because I was having, it was, with everything else, of course, church stuff, you know, one more wrinkle in my Elanon program. Um, Church stuff, family stuff, friendship stuff, it was all up. Personal health stuff, it was all up. What tools are you using? What are you doing to, you know, get, get some of the help you need? And he said, uh, uh, take all the time you need to get well. Take all the time you need to get well. And he showed great compassion. But he didn't tell me what I should be feeling, should be thinking, should be doing. And it took a while. It took probably three or four months of what I would call a lot of doing not much else. And I started feeling like a human being again. 
Also, how does he use an Al-Anon program with me? He doesn't run up to me with a lot of advice. I've mentioned that. He doesn't send me self-help books, for which I am so grateful I can't tell you. Um, I, my dad died this summer, and uh, he's been frail the last couple of years, and this is a big deal. This is a big deal. And so I mentioned this at a meeting, and, and someone came up and said, I have some great books on grief. And I said, I've read all those books on grief. My problem is not information. Now I get to walk through it. And all the information in the world doesn't help at all. Um, you just know that you're feeling really awful today, and it's there in the book. Oh, good. Um, <laughs> so but what he does, he listens and he respects my insides. He respects my insides. And um, lets me feel my pain, that's number one. Number two, uh, he lets me feel my hard one pain. Uh, number two, he's convinced that I have the right to live with the consequences of my mistakes. <laughs> Again, this is very hard because if someone does stupid things, I want to intervene. Now, this is very crazy for those of us in Alamon, because we do that a lot. We don't want people we love to have consequences for their awful behavior. Now, the great dividing line between adolescents and grown-ups, no matter how old you are, is grown-ups know that actions have consequences. Adolescents don't. And some people who are 46 years old, age-wise, and 15 years old emotionally have never put together the fact that their actions have consequences. And if I don't let them put that together, I'm keeping them sick. I have to let some people go through awful things with great compassion. It's kind of a shock to me to realize that frequently love is not powerful in the way I want love to be powerful. If I love someone, I want to be able to fix them, protect them, help them, move them on to the next plane, you know? And I find that sometimes those I love the most, I am most powerless with. But I get to feel the vulnerability of it. And then I need a meeting real badly. So I can let them show them the dignity of walking through their stuff. It's, it's called detaching. It's called letting go. It's called taking care of my own business. Otherwise, if I'm busy intervening all over your life, I'm playing God. I'm fixing you. I'm doing everything imaginable to make sure that you don't have your own life. And I've got, as we say in California, I have to respect your own process. <laughs> now, does that mean I cannot be helpful? No, 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 no. I want to be very helpful, but I want to be appropriately helpful. And this is a big topic. See, there are some things I should not do for you, ever. You've got to do them yourself. There are other things I better not do for you. I mean, you actually will be better off if I don't. There are other things I may do for you. I can be genuinely helpful, but I get to choose where that is, and I want that, because I'm so limited, I want that to go where it's helpful most, 
not where it gets in your way. And that means I have to talk about it and pray over it and interact with it. Um, sometimes people who are new to codependency world get a little black and white. I was walking somewhere and, and they opened the door for me and said, oh, I'm sorry for being codependent. <laughs> Good manners are not codependency. Courtesy is not codependency. Politeness is not codependency. Those are the things that help us get along with difficult people, namely ourselves. And I, I'm one of those people, when I uh, cannot get to an Al-Anon meeting, I read Miss Manners. Um, she has a lot to say about people getting along, and I find myself frequently agreeing with Miss Manners. And she really believes that people need to clean up their own act. And then we learn how to get along with each other. And a lot of the advice Miss Manners gives is very Al-Anon. You know, very Al-Anon, I think. Um, so if you haven't read her stuff, um, let me give her a little plug. And she, um, she believes that we can lead civilized lives. You know? Um, and real lives. And she believes in privacy, and she believes in friendship, and she believes in, in all kinds of things that help us feel and look like human beings. So, um, is there anything else to say? Oh, uh, when you're dealing with people with problems other than alcohol, know that. Know that. It's important to know what you know, and it's important to see what you see. One of the great books that deals with this whole subject is When Society Becomes an Addict by Ann Wilson Chase. And she sees a lot of crazy family dynamics on the national scale. And she says there's all kinds of things that make us sick. The patterns, and she looks at those. But she says one of the things you have to do for your own program is you have to tell the truth about what's going on. Avoid the smoke and mirrors. Don't be, take, don't be taken in by the hype. Don't trust Madison Avenue and the oil companies are not our friends. Okay? <laughs> Keep those things real clear. Uh, and tell your truth. Serenity.